You're listening to another episode of the Young Investors Podcast, so sit back and relax as myself, Brandon, and my buddy Hamish discuss the latest in the world of finance and stock market investing. Now, a quick reminder before we get into the podcast is that nothing in this podcast should be taken on as personal financial advice. If you're ever unsure about your finances or investing and you need some help, make sure you reach out to a qualified financial advisor. But with all that said, let's get into another episode of the Young Investors Podcast. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Young Investors Podcast. A little bit different today. We've, uh, we've got a new host, Brandon, that guy... It wasn't the greatest, honestly. Um, he was kind of uh, holding us back a little bit. So we went and got a better host. We've got Tom here today, investing with Tom. How you doing, mate? Yeah, good. I don't know that I'm really going to propel us forward versus Brandon, but <laughs> we'll see how we go. Oh, I, I think so. I think this is a great shakeup. The, you know, the podcast was, it was kind of stalling a little bit, I think. Um, so I, I had to let Brandon go. So um yeah, that's uh, that's that's where we're at now. No, but uh, Brandon is uh, Brandon. Well, Brandon was supposed to be joining us today, but uh, he had a power outage in in Canberra, um, so he's not joining us today. So we've just me and Tom, uh, just the the two good components of of the trio. But yeah, it's been a while. How you been? We haven't uh, we, <laughs> uh, we we haven't. Uh, what was the last time we did a podcast? We must have been in the US. So uh, I think it's been a while. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. We did we did a couple of podcasts there. I think we did the Young Investors podcast in Austin was probably the last one. And then uh, yes. you joined me for the Matt Peterson podcast also in Austin. I think that was probably the probably the last time we caught yeah, up, okay. really. Yeah, yeah. We we got a lot of uh we got a lot of uh, comments saying where's uh when we came back to Australia and it was just me and Brandon again and we got a lot of comments saying, Where's Tom? Where's Tom? <laughs> um so uh yeah, we, we we did mean to have you on uh you know, sooner. It's been like a couple of months, but uh, it's good to kind of have you back uh, to join us. And uh, we've got uh, a bit of a different uh, podcast this week. We're going to be covering the 13F filings uh, for institutional investors that came out uh, just over the past day or so, actually, from when we're recording this. We're actually, as we've been like writing up kind of or, or looking through the the filings, we've been hitting refresh and, and new filings will come in. So, um We've got we we can take a look at most of them. What what are we missing? We're missing uh we're missing Lee Lu, I yep. think. Uh as of when we're recording now. So hopefully he doesn't um make any major trades. <laughs> hopefully <laughs> yeah. he's nice and quiet so that we don't miss anything important. Yeah. And uh, I think Sequoia Fund is one I like to kind of take a look at. Um, although it's probably not near the top of my list of of uh you know funds that I, I watched. They also I think last quarter I'm pretty sure they re- they reported five days late, so I don't know what was going on with that. Wow, they they're pulling a pulling an, uh, an Elon Musk and <laughs> doing their <laughs> SEC filings a little bit late, so uh, we don't have them. But we have uh, Berkshire and Seth Klarman and Norbert Liu. Uh, who else? We got Michael Burry. So uh, yeah. yeah, should be uh, should be pretty good. Have should I good. Uh, have I have I missed anything? No, anything, I, anything you want to say? Anything you want to promote? No, that's, the, you can't the, promote anything. Yeah, so that's, the sponsor for that. today's episode. Is, I'm just gonna. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually what I was thinking. I was thinking I'm gonna get. I'm gonna put Tom on the spot. Tom's gonna do the share side sponsorship. Right, if you no. can, if you can give me the script, I'll happily do the share side sponsorship. Um, I was just I mean, gonna. I was just gonna sub in my link at the end. Is that all right? No. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's absolutely not okay. Um, that's not okay. No, I can't. Um, here, let me see if I can give you the script. I don't even really use this though. It's like a, 
I do it off like the top of my head, really. Here right. You go. It's at the bottom of the dock. There you go. Here we go. You want me, to, have, you want me to do first. this? I mean, if you want to. I don't really <laughs> want to do it. Shearside is, genuinely, Shearside is genuinely very good, though. Like, sponsored segment aside, I use it for all my tax. And I've got a series on the channel, actually, using Shearside for a couple of things as well. But um, Yeah. Yeah. No, it's okay. Do you want me to do it? I'll do it for us. Today's episode is sponsored by ShareSite, which is an application you can use to track the performance of your stock portfolio. So you can bring in all of your trades uh, either automatically by connecting your brokers or you can do it one by one um, by or one by one, or you can download your trades using Excel and, and import them into to ShareSite. And once you do that, it will track all of the gains and losses in your portfolio. So capital gains, dividends. If you have dividend reinvestment plans, it will do those calculations for you. Uh, currency gains, if you're buying shares internationally or you hold foreign currencies. Uh, and then you can also use it for when it comes to tax time. So ShareSite generates up to 12 different reports that can be used at tax time or used to track the performance of your portfolio and use the tax time to work out things such as capital gains, dividend income, and more. Uh, at the moment, you can try ShareSite for free by heading over to sharesite.com forward slash young investors. That's site spot S-I-G-H-T, sharesite.com forward slash young investors. Use that link, sign up to a free plan and track uh, up to 10 holdings for as long as you want. Or you can also use that link to sign up to a premium plan for more features. And if you use our link, you'll get four months off a yearly subscription. Uh, so go check it out. And thanks, as always, for everyone who has used that link to sign up to ShareSite, even if it's a free account, and is uh, supporting the podcast. A little bit more pressure on me this week. I'm Boom. feeling, I'm feeling no, the pressure because normally... I normally, well, normally I do the, the sponsor segments. So that's fine. But uh, I'm taking like more of the host. Brandon usually has like the, the host <laughs> role because I'm a, I'm a quiet, I'm a quiet person. So I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not good at like thinking on my, on my feet. So Brandon usually takes control, but um, I'll do my best. I'll do my best guys. Um, so where do we, where do we want to start? Did you have anything, uh, you know, did, did you want to start with something or do you want me to start by looking at something? Well, I think um, maybe we should come back to Berkshire and Buffett. Maybe we'll do them towards the end because there's a couple of interesting things to, to talk about in there. Um, probably one we can get out of the way pretty pretty easily is uh, Guy Spear at Aquamarine Capital Management. Um, hmm. Guy Spear, obviously the master of doing nothing, and he pretty much <laughs> kept that reputation up um, this quarter. He did sell yeah, right. Twitter. It was only about a 0.5% position for him in the last quarter, but he did sell right. all the way out of Twitter. And he said publicly that he basically got out as soon as the deal with Elon Musk was announced, price shot up. He kind of, um, you know, clocked out at that point. Um, but no other activity yeah. continued to, continues to have Berkshire, Amex, MasterCard, Ferrari, Micron, makeup kind of the, the top heavy sort of portion of the portfolio. Yeah. Okay. And he's had most of those holdings for like quite a while, right? I think um, I'm not, I don't, I don't remember following his portfolio all that much, but I remember seeing Ferrari in there at least for quite some time, I believe. Um, and I'm sure he's helped Berkshire for a while, but yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Do, do you have any? Yeah. Yeah. I think Berkshire was added to the portfolio. I think he put on like a 20% position at cost at the time and like, 1999 or 2000 or something and i'm I'm pretty sure that is the position we're looking at here which which he's got like berkshire shows up twice he's got the a shares and the b shares but that's um probably 30 percent of his u.s portfolio i know he's got byd the chinese electric vehicle company overseas which is very similar in size to his berkshire holding but yeah he he holds stuff for a very long time 
Yeah, uh, pretty much all, all all these value investors have like 20, 30% of the portfolio in Berkshire. Do you have do you have any thoughts on that? Do do you have do you hold Berkshire in your oh, you don't have to talk about your personal positions if you don't want yeah. to, but um like do you have any thoughts on on holding kind of a, a you know, a portion of Berkshire? Yeah, I think it's um I think a lot of people kind of just view it as like a maybe similar to an index fund in a lot of ways, maybe a index fund yeah. with slightly higher quality underlying businesses and clearly a better capital allocator than the average S&P 500 CEO. I think a lot of people <laughs> view it that way. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's not that hard to make the argument that it could, you know, do better at, better than the index if you can get it at a reasonable price. So um, I, I know yeah. a lot of people do get flack as asset managers for having big portions of the portfolio in Berkshire and sort of like, really, is that what I'm paying you for? But yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, but at yeah. the same time, you know, someone like Guy Spear is running a fee structure where he only gets paid for performance. You're not paying like a 2% management fee yeah. or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I, I can see I, why a lot of people do it. Yeah, I've seen I've seen a lot of people have criticism of, of value investors that hold and, and I that hold Berkshire. And I kind of get it if it's a very large position. But I mean, 20, 30 percent, I guess 30 percent is getting up there a little bit, but 10, 20 percent. For me, that kind of makes sense. I don't hold any Berkshire except for the one share that we <laughs> that yeah. I'm still holding from uh, <laughs> that we needed for the Berkshire meeting. But I have like 15% of my portfolio in index funds, and that has been kind of a a, a, a feature of my portfolio for a very long time. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that pretty much acts, you know, kind of in a similar way to to having, I guess, 20 or 30% in um in berkshire except yeah with the added element of of having you know an active investor who's done extremely well quite yeah. well i think you could say i think they've, he's pretty good. done all right yeah they've done okay he's i mean okay. you know yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah okay and and then in terms of twitter so he said so he backed out of that after the the elon musk acquisition did he or the the offer um did he give any insight into that in in, in detail about kind of what it was his thoughts around that, why he wanted to exit at that point, or was it just, we just know that that's when he exited? Yeah, he gave a little bit. Um, he, he kind of said that he has sat on the sidelines for the past decade, really like looking at a lot of these tech stocks that have done extremely well and kind of felt like he missed it. And um, mm. he nibbled a little bit at Twitter, like it was a very small position, but I think he paid something like 10 times sales you know like you often hear people talk about valuation metrics yeah. of earnings and he's paying you know these multiples <laughs> of sales he was like i've never paid this much for a company it was a sort of starter position um and you know when he saw the price suddenly shoot up um particularly with a company that was so expensive already and he maybe didn't understand hugely well what the future might look like for them i think he just kind of took the opportunity to to move on from it yeah okay all right um, is that all we had for uh, for Mr. Guy Spear? So we got from Guy Spear. I think he, I don't know, he must just go, if you follow him on, on Instagram, it looks like he just goes water skiing and drinks wine. So maybe that's, <laughs> like, I don't think he's looking at the portfolio. <laughs> he doesn't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh yeah yeah it's i mean look that's just going to be a feature of value investors and it's almost refreshing just to see that it, it kind of frustrates me when i look at some portfolios and they change so much and i just think what's your conviction like what what what's your vision for the portfolio it's it's nice just coming back and looking at a portfolio yep they yeah. did nothing this quarter yet again well um, well speaking so. of someone with a lot more portfolio turnover should we do michael burry do yeah we should do one? 
Yeah, we'll talk through it. Um, let me just uh, read through Brandon's notes here because, yeah, as, as I said, Brandon was going to join us at a power outage. Um, but, yeah, Burry, uh, Burry's, Burry's always active, though. He's uh, quarter by quarter. I think especially the last three or four quarters, he's pretty much eliminated the entire portfolio and replaced it <laughs> yeah. with something else over and over again. Sometimes it's he's got a bunch of equity holdings and then the next quarter he sells them all and he has a lot of call and uh, put options and then they're all gone and then he has equities again. And then this quarter is, uh, is another interesting one. So uh, he sold out of every single position. <laughs> so, uh, crazy. Uh, that, that's, uh, that's interesting. He closed his, uh, put option position in Apple. So I think that was the largest, uh, not the largest position in terms of what he would have invested, but in terms of the value of the options the that he had against. Yeah. Yeah. Then the normal value against the Apple shares. I think it was the largest position last quarter. Um, so he's, he's closed out of that. Uh, he sold out of Google and meta, which he actually held both of those for quite a while, I believe, or maybe he had some options for them at some point and then some equity holdings at other points. Uh, booking holdings he stole out of, he sold out of uh, Stellantis, Nexstar. Uh, there's a, there's quite a bunch there, so I won't go through the list. Um, but he sold out all of them and then he bought one stock, um, which was Geo Group, which is now 100% of his US portfolio. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he's going all in on one stock, although it's only $3.3 million of... Uh, of stock, I believe, right? So, mm. I, that obviously leaves generally, I think, what he's been managing quite a lot more than that. Actually, how do we even get a 13F if he only has three point? Well, <laughs> yeah, his, his assets under management are definitely over $100 million. Um, if right. So, yeah. So- and I think it's pretty substantially above... Um, above a hundred million. And so he's to see only a $3 million position, $3 million position in there. I don't, I don't know what the hell he's doing, man. <laughs> yeah. So he's, he's got some cash. Maybe he's got some other uh, positions outside of the U S who knows, um, who some, knows what that, that man could be investing in anything. Like he could have, he could have bought a hundred million dollars worth of paintings. Like we, <laughs> we really don't know what that man is, is thinking, but um, yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, he's Bro's been an interesting character recently because he's very active on Twitter at the moment, which is great because everyone wants to know what he thinks, and uh, and there's always lots of videos to make about him. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he, he's he's been sharing his thoughts a lot about you know macro predictions, and and some of his trades have kind of reflected that um, over time. But yeah, he's he, I don't know, he's I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on Bory? He's he, he always just I don't know. It's it's hard to read his 13F because it's so. It's, it, it, he trades in it so much that there's not, you can't even really trust anything he buys that he'll keep it for even three months. Yeah, know. it's very hard to look at. Um, I I, I kind of look at it for entertainment value, but as far as like generating yeah. investment ideas, there's not a lot that comes out of it, to be honest. And just, just quickly, um, yeah. it looks like as of April, his assets under management was $291 million. So, um, okay. Don't know what he's up to with all that money. Hmm, very suspicious. Yeah, <laughs> it'd be funny if he was just in like two hundred million of cash. <laughs> yeah, who knows at this point? I, I, I mean, I guess the shorts yeah. don't don't show up for thirteen Fs, and Michael Barry is obviously that's very a good famous point. for and shorting. So, yeah, that's a that's a that's an excellent point. Yeah, so yeah, the shorts won't show up, and he's been very very pessimistic on the markets broadly. Um, so yeah, that actually wouldn't be surprising at all if he had some large short positions um, there. Um, but yeah, Geo Group, I think is it was it a private prisons business, so it's not an area I'm particularly uh, uh, interested in. To be to be completely honest, and it's certainly an area I know very very little about. Um, 
Yeah. And I'm not really sure what that says about his opinion on the markets. Um, thinking that the prison <laughs> population is going to go up. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> that doesn't sound. That doesn't sound. But it kind of goes in line with his uh his idea that everything's collapsing. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I don't know. Who, who knows? He, he's a he, he's much of an active trader when it comes to some of these positions. So. Yeah, um, and pretty small company as well. Like only a nine hundred and forty million dollar market cap, according to Google. Right. So, um, okay. Who knows? Who knows? Um, on the on the flip side, in terms of going back to some some uh, investors who kind of didn't make too many changes, Ackman, uh, Bill Ackman, uh, he didn't really make any changes during the quarter except for one change, which was he sold one hundred percent of Netflix, but. Uh, we already knew this. He disclosed it immediately after. Uh, so, so just to give some context, uh, Netflix reported their second quarter earnings in April. The stock fell, I can't remember, 30% or something. And, and Ackman sold out uh, after that decline. And he disclosed um, that he had sold out then. So um, that was a pretty major move. I think Netflix was like one of his top five positions. So it was quite you know a substantial investment. I think he invested... Four billion and lost a billion on that trade, <laughs> um, so you know that was pretty substantial. But besides that, I'm um, just looking at his portfolio here, which is pretty concentrated. Um, not too many, not really any moves there. Slightly reduced Chipotle, slightly reduced uh, restaurant brands, International, Domino's, and Hilton. Um, so, so yeah, nothing. Um, yeah, nothing too much kind of to to read into Ackman. Uh, may as well just flow on into the next one here, which is uh, Seth Klarman, um, which is uh, someone we don't hear too much about. Um, he kind of stays, he stays out of the spotlight. Yeah. Um, I don't know. He, he's very quiet. Th- there's no interviews on him. Are there any interviews of on him in like the last decade? <laughs> I, I feel was, like there's yeah. a couple. I think there was one that <laughs> yeah. actually came out earlier this year, but that was the only one I'd seen from him in quite some time. Um, oh, damn. I must have, uh, I must have missed that because- yeah. I'll see if I can track Did, down the name of that video on YouTube just while you're running through what he's, what yeah. he's been up to. Because you search Seth Klarman, at least um, maybe besides this video, you you search it on YouTube and there's like one video that's in like 320p from like 2007 yeah. or something. Actually, now now you mention it, um, I think he did do a talk for some... Um, I forget which university, but I but I think it was whatever university he went to back in the day. That was posted on YouTube yeah. for like two days and then got taken down because apparently he didn't want that like out in the wide world. He just kind of wanted it for <clears throat> for the people that were there watching it live. So I think that's actually what what happened to that talk. But um, I do know um, uh, Sven Carlin actually seems to have a bit of a summary video. Uh, on that interview, he, he must have gotten there quick okay. and watched it. So if anyone wants to check that out, um, just to, just YouTube Seth Climan yeah. interview, and it should be like right up the list there. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, he, he yeah. So Seth Climan has that. Uh, he wrote a book, Margin of Safety, which I think it's like a thousand dollars because he only published <laughs> yeah. like a, a few of them. Um, but yeah, he, he follows you know many of the same kind of value investing, core value investing principles. Um, he actually has fifty stocks in his portfolio, so he has a lot of positions. The top ten make up seventy percent, and then it seems like he kind of anything he's potentially slightly interested in, he kind of just buys a little bit of it and he has a lot of positions that are like 0.1%, 0.2% of the portfolio. Um, it seems like he kind of dips his toes into those. So excluding kind of moves on those because we'll be here forever because he he d- did dive in and out of a lot of those. 
He has a lot of uh, legacy media, telecommunications assets, um, Liberty Media, which has kind of three wings. It has the Formula One holdings, the Sirius XM, which is kind of a radio broadcaster. They own Pandora. How is Pandora going these days, by the way? They can't be doing too well compared to uh, Spotify, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I haven't, I haven't heard of Pandora. I remember... I remember a while ago I heard about I I used to use Pandora but um yeah I haven't I haven't really heard of them before uh, in, in a while um and then they also own the Atlanta MLB uh team which is an interesting kind of combination he also owns uh, Liberty Global which was a sp- the international spin-off from Liberty Media uh ViaSat which is a satellite broadcast uh, and then a new addition to the portfolio Warner Brothers Discovery uh so this is probably the most interesting kind of move from uh at least for me <laughs> uh for uh for, for this uh quarter his 10th it's uh it makes up his uh the, the 10th biggest position in his portfolio 3.7 percent so um it, it's you know it's a relatively small investment um in his portfolio but uh kind of goes alongside some of the other legacy assets um that uh that he has in the portfolio um, th- this investment, of course, was made in the in the second quarter. So this was before their uh, latest earnings came out, which came out just a couple of weeks ago. But um, just to give some kind of context on the earnings of, of Warner Brothers and where their business is going, because they actually spoke a little bit about uh, the direction they're taking the business. Uh, during the second quarter, uh, domestic subscribers actually declined. So they, they kind of followed few of the other streaming services which have actually been kind of uh, struggling over the past couple of months to, to gain subscribers. Netflix being the worst, of course, with a 1 million subscriber loss in the last quarter. Uh, Warner Brothers lost uh, 300,000 domestically, but they actually gained 2 million internationally. So there was still a, a net positive. Uh, and it was really interesting to hear uh, the new CEO kind of came out uh, and said they're going to be taking pretty much a completely different approach to Netflix when it comes to content. So they're actually cutting spending content on original on original content for their streaming services so um they're still gonna make some series uh but in terms of movies uh they're gonna continue to do everything through the traditional uh theatrical release channel so they're gonna do theatrical release uh they have a shortened window uh and then kind of licensed out and and released on their streaming services uh and this kind of came after uh, they lost $4 billion on $10 billion of revenue. So clearly in the last couple of quarters, they've been spending massive amounts of money yeah. on their streaming services. A big, a big chunk of that, of course, was through their streaming services. And uh, they're going to be, they're going to be cutting that back. So uh, interesting approach It's pretty much the opposite approach to Netflix, which is Netflix is like, how can we spend as much money as possible <laughs> on as much content as possible? And uh, Warner Brothers just wants to be kind of, uh, I think they said they just want to release a few pieces of content on their platforms, but make them really incredible pieces of content, which again, is very opposite to Netflix, which is like, well, does anybody have a script? Let's just throw money at it. (laughs) Um, So it is interesting to kind of see the... I don't know, the dynamic between the, the two different approaches. Yeah. Um, I do don't know. You, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I was just going to ask because, I mean, you've obviously been uh, living in the streaming world the, these last few months, um, if anyone hadn't yeah. noticed. And um, Really? I, I, I mean, are they, are they having to cut back spending just because they don't have the scale of Netflix? Like, do they, do they actually have the option to keep spending as high as they had it? 
Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, look, they're operating at a massive loss and I, I personally think that they can't, um, that they're cutting back because they haven't reached the scale. But it is a difficult like kind of chicken or the egg situation because Netflix yeah. was also not profitable for a really long time. So it's like they have to spend, or at least is my view, they it, it looks like they have to spend huge amounts to get the sub base, to get to scale uh, in order to support uh, the content spend. Uh, and it, it is kind of a, difficult kind of chicken or the egg uh and warner brothers is basically saying we're not going to try and get to well at least not to get to scale through content spend um they're going to try and hopefully continue to grow their streaming service but they're looking to continue to um to squeeze money out of their other revenue streams so um things like licensing they're still going to do, be doing a lot of licensing to other streaming services to other networks uh, and even just selling warner brothers produced content like there's a lot of content that comes out on netflix that's not licensed to netflix from warner brothers they just sell it to netflix so it's it's a Netflix original technically, but it's made by Warner Brothers. So they're going to continue to do that. And it's basically, I guess you, what you can read into that is they believe they can make more money by producing a show and selling it to Netflix than they can from producing a show, putting it on HBO Max and gaining subscribers. Um, so yeah, it is kind of just a, just a different approach rather than spending as much money on their own content and keeping it all on one platform, uh, they're still going to be kind of getting revenue by by selling and, and licensing. So, yeah, it's a, yeah, I don't know, interesting. Yeah. Uh, they, they also came out and uh, said they're going to be combining HBO Max and, Di and Discovery Plus um, to make, I don't know, something maybe Warner, Warner Plus, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know I don't know what they're going to call it. Um, so, they, they're going to be combining those streaming services uh, together. So, so yeah, interesting. Um, Klarman, another uh, another value investor who's recently taken a position in a streaming service. Berkshire took a small position in Paramount, um, and then you know you had uh, Ackman who was in Netflix uh, and Sequoia's in Netflix. So uh, yeah, a lot of a uh, lot of divert different uh, takes on on the streaming and media space. For sure, yeah. There's like a there's a lot of people dipping their toes into these streaming service stocks and. Um yeah i don't know it's it's like a it's still a pretty fresh industry and we really don't know how this is all going to play out yeah 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 i think that's that's yeah fair i mean if you, if you look at kind of how people are spending their time the vast majority is still broadcasting cable television and a lot of that will probably stick around for a, quite a while things like news and sports uh seem you know at least more organic on uh broadcast and, and cable television whereas movies is kind of more organic I, I think in a library where you can choose and it's on demand so i think some parts will you know take time to move over and a lot of these media companies have big assets in in news and, and sports um so yeah it's not as it's not as simple as you know next year everything's going to be streaming it's going to be kind of a process of moving over but uh, it is interesting to kind of watch the the different ways that media companies are deciding, do we go all in on streaming and just kind of neglect these other revenue streams that have worked so well for so long? Or do we try and have like a balance of, of, of the two? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that was, that was pretty much it for Klarman. He sold half of his Intel uh, investment. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really have all that much to say about it. Uh, about, about that business. So. Yeah, neither <laughs> yeah. do I. <laughs> uh, what do you want to take us from here? Do you, do you have a... Um, yeah, I had, <clears throat> I had maybe a slightly different one to, uh, I guess, the usual culprits for 13Fs. Uh, uh, 
I have for a little while been following an investor called Norbert Liu, um, who runs a fund called Punch Card Management, I guess taking after the whole Buffett, you only get 20 punches in your lifetime. And if you, you know, thought about an investment really hard and before you made one of your punches, you'd have a good track record, that kind of analogy. <clears throat> um, and, and if anyone's interested in learning more about Norbert Liu, um, there's a 2005 lecture from Joel Greenblatt on YouTube, which is very good. It basically goes through um, write-ups from Value, Inve- Value Investors Club, which is a website, basically like a forum where people can do write-ups of different stock ideas. And Joel Greenblatt, Joel Greenblatt actually helped set that website up. And the whole idea is like you submit a, uh, you know, a write-up of a stock idea and the best idea each week gets 5,000 US dollars as a prize. And I think that's still running. And um, wow. Norbert Lou was one of the like early contributors to that website. He went under the alias Charlie 479. And um, in, this, <laughs> in this old um, Joel Greenblatt lecture, he basically gives it all the students you know, two or three write-ups from this guy, Charlie 479, and talks through the stock ideas. Um, you know, kind of has the students unpick them a little bit and then basically shows like how these stocks have performed. And I guess um, Joel Greenblatt wasn't really picking the losers in that particular <laughs> lecture, but um, a lot of the stocks worked out extremely well. And one of them is pretty well known, probably the stock Norbert Lou's most well known for is a home builder in the US called NVR. Um, hmm. He he took over management of his uh, mum's $60,000 retirement account in the 90s when he first started investing in stocks. <laughs> and he put a pretty substantial chunk of that into NVR. And um, I was just updating some of the numbers before this episode, but um, NVR had kind of like two or three different engines for stock returns that all kind of performed well. They actually, they grew the business. So the underlying net income for the business went up 71 times between 1995 <laughs> and uh it's not bad <laughs> yeah and not bad and december 2021 so um net income went up sev- 71 times they bought back 76.5% of their shares or in other words your sort of proportional ownership of the company for each share went up about four and a quarter times um and the PE that the company was selling for in the market went up about 2.2 times. So if you take wow. the 71x in net income times four and a quarter, you know, from the share buybacks times 2.2 for the multiple expansion, uh, it's been a 668 bagger since 1995, which uh, That's all isn't, right. isn't too bad. <laughs> so um, so personally, I like that to keep an insane. eye on, on what Norbert Lou's up to. So um, for a long time, he's... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, all, all I was going to say is it's interesting that they did such aggressive share purchases, but even still, the seventy one the the net income growth was kind of the biggest kind of driver in, in yep. the business over that time. Seventy one times is kind of crazy, Insane. and then he still was buying it at somewhat of a discount, obviously in terms of uh, you know price to earnings ratio, because he still got the double, um, yeah, in in the valuation, which is kind of insane. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess true to the name of his fund, Punch Card Management, Norbert Lou runs very concentrated. So if we look at his thirteen F, there uh, were only three stocks in there for a long time, which was Berkshire Hathaway. Ally Financial and Winnebago Industries, which um, I guess both of us probably know pretty well via our Thor research. Um, <laughs> and he added a, a new stock to the portfolio this quarter, which is Smith and Wesson, which um, is like the you know the gun manufacturer in the US. So um, yeah, interesting okay. to see that added. It was a pretty small position. Um, I don't know whether 
this 13F is just catching the start of him buying into it or whether he genuinely just wants it as a small position. But of his US portfolio, it's only about 2%, um, whereas Berkshire is 44%, Ally Financial 36 and Winnebago 17 So, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you never really know, um, especially because we're looking at these these 13F filings 45 days after the end of the period. So, yeah. we don't even know, you know, he might have been buying what, like four and a half months ago, or he could have, yeah, caught the end of it 45 days ago, and we're going to see most of it. You know, it's it's very difficult to kind of read from from the from the 13F. But yes, yeah. Smith and Wesson. Yeah, I'm not sure. Guns is an area I haven't really looked too much into. Um, Neither. Probably a little little bit out of my element in Australia. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Looking at uh, looking at guns, I'm not sure I'd understand the the consumer perspective on that one. Um, although I guess they probably, I would imagine, sell quite a bit to the military but look i don't know I, yeah, i'm not sure neither um, um an initial look tells me it's trading at a pe of 3.7 right now so if those earnings okay. are anywhere near sustainable um, i can see why someone like Novelo might be interested um but that's mm. the activity we had on the 13f if we look at some of his international activity he does have a couple of additional stocks so um he for a while has had a position in a business in the uk called naked wines um which is like an right. online wine store type thing. Um, he's got Motorpoint Group PLC, which I must say I have no idea what that is. Um, but the one that's most interesting to me is he bought into a new stock called Countryside Partnerships PLC, again, a UK business. Um, the latest regulatory filing we have is the 13th of June, and it uh, looks like it's about a 10% position of his entire portfolio at least that we can see publicly so um, the interesting okay. thing with countryside partnerships if you start digging into that company um, it actually seems to be a uk home builder uh, so we just talked about nvr being a us home builder <laughs> um, they've recently sold off a really like low quality low return on capital type business to funnel a lot of money towards share buybacks and uh, they also happen to be doing um, these interesting new developments where they put up very little amounts of capital. And one of the key things that drove NVR's growth was instead of purchasing plots of land, which is obviously requires a lot of capital, and that's kind of how most home builders do it, they uh, went out and wrote like basically these option contracts, which is um, a way that they could put up less capital to get into these deals. So um, quite a few mm. potential similarities there. Um Obviously, we get to see how that one plays out, but um, that one caught my attention for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that might be might be worth a look. Is, is the management projecting seventy one times in uh, net income over the next, <laughs> I, over the next uh, what was it twenty six years? Yeah, I actually <laughs> I actually think they have no CEO at the moment. At least last time I looked. So, oh, um, really? yeah, they're they're on the hunt for one. If you need a job, wow, yeah. if anyone out there wants to be a CEO of a home builder. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. So, oh boy, um, that's interesting. So, so how do you see the these UK um, investments? How, how are you looking at these? Um, like how am I tra- how am I finding the actual uh, filings? Yeah, I'm just yeah, look- just the filing. Yeah, I'm just looking on ticker um, that kind of okay. compiles some of the international filings. Um, okay. Yes. Uh, would that be through owning like a ten percent stake in those businesses, or does because I'm not sure, but I does does UK have like similar hundred million SEC? Like 13F? Yeah, I think the US is pretty unique in the whole 13F thing. Um, yeah. But Norbert Lou owns 3% of 
uh, countryside partnerships. So possibly that's pushed him over some threshold and he owns almost 10% okay. of Naked Wines and about 3% of okay. Motor Point Group as well. So possibly there's some okay. thresholds there he's pushed over. And I know that varies a lot between yeah. regions. Like um, when Berkshire bought those Japanese holding companies, I think the threshold was 5% in Japan. That's when we saw those stocks. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. All right. Yeah, did you uh, did you ever end up keep looking into Naked Wines? I remember we we kind of we had a bit of a discussion on it, but um, yeah, I, I didn't find it. Uh, I don't know. It was difficult to see what the competitive advantage was. What made them different from, you know, all the other yeah. all the other wine <laughs> subscriptions? I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, well, Naked Wines would say their answer to that question would be like we can provide higher quality wine at a lower price. Um, but I just yeah. I just don't know if I can get across that and i think there's like an educational piece to that as well like um from from the research i did do on naked wines it seems like that um that idea seems to work very well in the uk um whereas in the us it seems like they've been um sorry to any us wine drinkers but yeah it seems like the us has been a little more like brainwashed to basically say if you buy, if you spend more dollars on a bottle of wine, it must be better. And there's no possible be way that it's an efficient market hypothesis all over again. There's no way that you can buy a, <laughs> you can buy a, you know, lower priced wine and it'd be better quality. So I think yeah. there's an educational struggle there for naked wines and the U S is intended yeah. to be where a lot of their future growth will come from. So, well, that was always my just consumer perspective of the wine market as someone who's not into wine. I, I would always make that assumption. I would always yeah. assume if it's cheap, it's probably cheap quality wine as well. So it is, that's where I was kind of stumped as to how, how is that gap yeah. uh, with the consumer being bridged? Because um, yeah, like every day in my letterbox, I get, you know, those little cards that you get um, that, you know, you spend $150, get a free bottle of wine or whatever. And I, I should, I should keep, um, I should start keeping them because I think there's probably like 20 or 30 different companies that I get these little these little vouchers for. I've seen naked wines pop up a few times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, there's so many of them. So that's yeah, that was kind of where I I yeah. kind of left it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Same. It does seem like a, an area where there's an opportunity for a lot of disruption. Like I, I don't have the stats in front of me, but if you go into any sort of naked wines presentation, you'll see um, they basically lay out the economics of a, the wine industry as it typically is set up, and they'll say you know. I'm just pulling these numbers out of thin air. This won't be right, but they, it might be something like only 30% of the dollars you're spending on a bottle of wine at a supermarket actually go to the winemaker and, you know, the mm. grape grower. A lot of it's just going towards, um, you know, all the middlemen along that supply chain like doing the marketing. And- exactly, yeah. So Naked Wines yeah. are, are working direct with the winemakers and cut, cutting out a lot of those other people's margins in it in theory should allow them yeah. to, you know, sell the same quality wine at a lower price. But um that's yeah that's okay. the idea at least. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Um was there anything else for uh Norbert Mr. Norbert Lou? Nope. That's him. He has that's uh it. punched another hole off his card, I guess you could say. He's punched one more. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I wonder if uh we have oh, surely someone's tracking how many he's he's punched. <laughs> yeah, once he gets to twenty, he better not be he better over. not buy a twenty first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll be watching yeah. <laughs> no that's um that's funny um what else have we got here we got berkshire uh yeah. which we can we can talk about and uh we've we've kind of saved it so it feels like um you know you, you might think we're building up to something you know incredible here but there isn't anything 
that we haven't kind of discussed before, um, although I think you've got some interesting kind of notes on on some of the big purchases that are in there. Um, but before you get to those, uh, Activision Blizzard, um, they added a, a small amount to, to that position. That's kind of this workout uh, risky arbitrage that they've been had a position in where Microsoft is is looking to um, get approval to acquire uh, Activision Blizzard for, I think, what was it, $69 billion. Um, so, yeah, nothing. I don't think there's been any developments um, in that direction. I think it's still regulatory uh, at the regulatory stage. Um, so, I, I'm not sure if there was... I don't recall seeing anything newsworthy kind of out of, uh, out of that um, acquisition, um, I don't think. Did you see anything uh, out of that? No, I haven't seen anything either. Um, and I don't know that the discount or anything to the buyout price has closed a huge amount. So I guess, I don't know, if you're a maths nerd, maybe if the spread hasn't changed and the time's shorter, the you know annualized return or whatever might look a little more attractive. Mm. But um, I haven't seen any news there. Yeah. Yeah, no. Okay. Um, yeah, so then, you know, Berkshire's other moves kind of came from uh, their continued investment in in, in energy and, and particularly oil uh, businesses. Did you want to run through that? Because it's an area that I think you've been looking into and it's an area I am very uh, much a novice in. So. Yeah, and it's, it's a shame Brandon's not here because I know he's a big fan of the oil industry. He he loves he loves it yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well well if Canberra was uh, no we won't get into that <laughs> yeah. no it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting it's an uh, yeah it's an industry that will uh, have a final day at some point I'm sure but uh, Buffett clearly thinks it's yeah. got a while to run yet um, so the I guess the update for the oil stocks and Buffett's portfolio um, weren't particularly surprising one of the reasons for that is because. You know, obviously we get the 13Fs every quarter, but there are these regulatory thresholds where if you own a certain percentage of a company, you have to kind of continuously disclose any transactions that have been happening. So kind of for the last several months at this point, we've been getting uh, quite a few Form 4s, which is the US, you know, 10% ownership type filing um, from Buffett buying into Occidental. So just to maybe walk through some of the history of um of yep. Buffett's purchases, if we look at his uh, first quarter 13F, he owned 136 million shares. If we look at his second quarter 13F, which is the one that has just come out, uh, it's got 158 million shares. But if you look on a lot of the websites that show you know, guru portfolios, uh, it'll actually display 272 million shares because of these Form 4s. So even mm. since the 13F reporting period has closed for the quarter we're talking about at the moment, he's... Um, He's added a lot more stock. So um, he he yeah. now has Chevron as his fourth biggest position, uh, $23.4 billion, which I think must be getting close to the amount of money he initially put into Apple. I think that was $30 billion. It's gone up so much, it doesn't look anywhere near that now. It's probably in that range. Yeah, though. I think it was like 20 or $30 billion that he put into to Apple. Yeah. It must have been. Yeah. Yep. And, Interesting. Uh, and additional to that, he's uh, put thir- uh, sorry sixteen point three billion. That's his position in Occidental now. So uh, those two companies are his fourth and sixth largest investments in the at least the US portfolio of Berkshire now. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So okay. So that's interesting. So at least with so is it just with Occidental we get to see the form fours because that's is that the only one he's above the ten percent threshold? I think. That's right. right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think yeah. he's I think he's into the twenties now. I think he's almost got a quarter of the company. Wow, um, <laughs> that's so, crazy. I don't know. Like, um, yeah. 
it's probably within <laughs> range of a full buyout if he really wanted to do it, I think. Um, there's been a bit yeah. of speculation about whether that might happen or not. But um, yeah, okay. Yeah, time will tell. Yeah. And so have, have you kind of been covering or, or looking into some of these businesses? Because I uh, I, I haven't at all. So yeah, um, I, yeah I've, I've watched oil prices go very, very high and they're coming down a little bit. And that's that's pretty much my insight into, <laughs> into the energy yeah. market. Yeah. And that was... That was kind of where I was at for, um, well, up until this week, really, as well. <laughs> I've spent a bit of time on it this <laughs> week. I thought it'd be interesting. There's an article that came out from uh, Markets Insider about basically just like some key quotes that Buffett has said over the years about oil. And I thought it might be interesting just to cover a couple of them, just to give a bit of context around how Buffett tends to think about oil. So um, the first one he said here is when you buy into a huge oil production company, how it works out is going to to be dependent on the price of oil to a great extent. It's not going to be your geological home runs or super mistakes or anything like that. It's an investment that depends on the price of oil, probably pretty self-explanatory, but um that's yeah. I guess the way Buffett thinks about it. So to me, him putting a lot of money into oil stocks is um in a lot of ways probably him expressing a view that he thinks oil prices will be higher for longer than most people probably anticipate. I think that's probably one of the key reasons that that he's looking at oil. Yeah. Um the other thing he said is uh, you've stuck a lot of straws into the earth and it's a finite number. So the one thing I can promise, I can almost promise you is that oil will sell for a lot more someday. That's something he said in 2011. The first quote was in 2020. Okay. Um, and the last one that I thought would be interesting, um, he said uh, it wasn't that long. So this is a 2022 quote. We're, we're moving forward in time here now. So uh, <laughs> he said it wasn't that long ago that the idea that anybody that produced a barrel of oil was somehow something terrible. Uh, I mean, just try doing without 11 million barrels a day and see what happens tomorrow. If we were to try and change over three or five years, nobody knows what would happen. Uh, The odds it would work out well are extremely low. For now, most people feel that it's nicer to have some oil in this country uh, than to not have it. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So I, I guess, so with that second quote, with the s- straws in the ground, he's kind of indicating, I guess, that he believes like the supply will be kind of limited over time. And I, yeah, I guess he's just making a broad judgment about, about where oil prices will be in the future. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think yeah. Buffett is judging by the way he's investing Berkshire's money. Um, I think he really believes that oil prices will be higher for longer than the market kind of expects. Um, And you would think he has, I mean, he's got a pretty long history investing in oil back to like the 60s or 70s. Um, Probably the most recent big one he did was in PetroChina in the early 2000s, which I think was about a 5x for him. Um, And now he's making some pretty serious moves here. Um, The other thing that I think always, you know, you should kind of be looking at in any company really, but particularly with a commodity business like oil is... Um, just kind of what the capital allocation looks like. I think that's probably the second key element as to why um, Buffett is so interested in oil at the moment. So I've pulled out some numbers from Occidental's uh, second quarter earnings, which they've just reported in the last few weeks. So um, Occidental is a $60 billion market cap company. They've got a little bit of debt, so the enterprise value is a little higher. Um but $60 billion market cap, and they just produced $4.2 billion of free cash flow in a single quarter. 
Um, (laughs) So if you you annualize that out and assume they do 4.2 billion in every quarter for the next four, um, that's a little under $17 billion in free cash flow or a multiple of like three Mm. and a half. Um, Yeah, right. But well, yeah. So obviously, is that going to be affected by the fact that oil prices have been astronomically high? Yeah, at ma- the moment? yeah, massively. Okay. So I think um, I might be slightly off on this number, but um, Occidental put out figures in their investor slide decks, which basically say our free cash flow will go up or down. I think two hundred million dollars for every dollar that the oil price goes up or down. <laughs> so they're hugely right, leveraged okay. to the oil price. Um, yeah. And the other thing I was going to say is um, actually not sure if I've got the numbers in front of me but um essentially they are putting almost all of that cash into either debt repayment share buybacks or dividends as far as i can tell there's basically like no oil company investing for growth which is kind of weird um if you go back and look Mm. at some of the long-run stock prices for these companies a lot of them like are really only just getting back to 2007 levels which is the last time we saw oil prices really go super high and the whole kind of yeah. name of the game at that time was basically growth. Like all oil investors just wanted growth. We wanted more exploration, a lot of CapEx um, going into trying to yeah. find more oil. And a lot of people got, or a lot of oil companies and energy investors got burnt from that time when it kind of all came crashing down. And it seems like people yeah, have really okay. learned lessons from that. And they, they kind of just want the cash back now. <laughs> they don't They don't want growth. Um, yeah okay and you would think that that would probably be positive for oil prices if generally oil companies are investing less in exploration you would imagine there'd be less supply maybe over time and that would drive potentially higher prices in oil for these companies yeah i i think um i think that's probably one of the core um thoughts going through Buffett's head to be honest is that everyone is doing this like everyone seems to be just um not wanting to grow and just pay out big dividends and cherry purchases um so you've sort of got this supply constraint potentially uh on you know on the supply side and then Mm. I mean if you look at the stats like um you know obviously we're going to have to transition away from oil and gas over over time or we're going to have some serious climate issues um (laughs) but if you look at the actual stats like demand for oil if you eliminate 2020 because demand for oil went down a little in 2020 when obviously no one was traveling or anything um (laughs) but it's pretty consistently grown at like two or three percent a year the last couple of decades it kind of just keeps trucking upwards the, the demand for oil yeah okay that's interesting yeah i mean i think I think I mean it makes sense that we're going to be using oil for a very long time in industrials and manufacturing, and there's just, I mean, you can kind of look at the consumer. There's obviously we're we're moving towards renewables on the consumer front in in some aspects, but um, you know, huge parts of the economy are still you know fueled significantly by by oil, and you you can't imagine that that's gonna you know you can't flick a switch and and turn that off all of a sudden. That's a you know at least a one decade, probably many decade, uh, multi-decade um, runway. So, yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting stuff. Doesn't I don't know. It's not an, a business that particularly stands out to me um, as as being one that I would I'd be you know particularly interested in, especially because there seems like there's a lot of regulatory elements um, 
involved in in you know the the pricing of of oil and 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 that sort of thing. So seems difficult for me, but um, yeah, certainly interesting. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe just one last quick thing I'll mention is um, from a mm. lot of the investors that I you know follow on Twitter and that sort of thing. It seems like most of them tend to be landing on about like sixty to seventy dollar oil as where um, the valuations of oil stocks tend to suggest that oil prices will fall in the long term. That's kind of about the range that is implied by a lot of the current valuations of of, of these oil stocks. Um, so, yeah, Buffett clearly thinks that it's going to be substantially higher than that or else he wouldn't be doing what he's doing. Um, and if it turns out that, yeah. you know, oil prices long term are higher than the 60 to $70 range, um, you know, a lot of these oil companies are so leveraged to that price. Like if we're, even a little bit above 70, 80, 90 and getting to like, I think we got to 120 or 130 recently. There's just so much <laughs> extra cash that comes in the door. It's kind of ridiculous, which is what we're seeing with Oxy at the moment. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, very interesting. And then weren't you saying that I think on the all of the Form 4s, it looked like he was kind of buying at the same kind of price or something like that? Wasn't he yeah. continuing to just dip as it dipped below? Yeah. Yeah, it seems like kind of anything below $60 a share he's kind of purchasing. So I've pulled out the latest Form 4 from, this runs from like the 4th to the 8th of August. So he's buying at fifty-seven eighty, fifty-eight sixty, fifty-seven thirty, fifty-eight fifty, fifty-nine, fifty-eight eighty, 50, 58, 50, 59, 58, 80, and 60. That kind of, and it seems like it's been similar in previous Form 4s. So, Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, do we have any other? Do we have any other thirteen Fs? I think that might be it. Um, I think that's it. We've also got uh, from Data Roma a, a summary of uh, of kind of what the the super investors um, or you know these respected investors that Data Roma puts in a list uh, what they've been buying most um, during the quarter. These lists, I, I, I do enjoy looking at them, but you've got to think, remember in the context of, you know, just because it's the most commonly purchased doesn't mean it was a large percentage of any of those people's portfolio, or it might be a large percentage, um, but it's only one person. So just keep keep that in mind when we're going through this list. But in terms of the most, the top 10 buys during the quarter, uh, Meta Platforms was still number one. I think it's been number one for quite a few quarters. It's uh, quite a popular one there. Amazon, uh, both uh, types of uh, Alphabet stock, uh, the Walt Disney Company, Booking Holdings, PayPal Holdings, Microsoft Corp, Adobe, and Moody's Corp. I haven't seen Adobe on there actually um, mm. in in a while. They've been Adobe is an interesting business because I think they probably have some very powerful competitive advantages, but they're also incredibly frustrating as a consumer. Yeah. <laughs> like they they really do lock you in, and I think that is a massive advantage, but. Uh, but yeah, as a, as a, as a user of Adobe, it's incredibly frustrating, um, when their services don't, when their products don't work and then, then they jack the prices up and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. Um, I don't know, nothing too kind of, nothing standing out, I guess, really in that list. Um, Google and, and Meta continue to be extremely popular. Um, Disney, Disney in there is interesting. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that list? No, they're, they're all kind of. Like it's a nice, like if someone said, hey, here's my portfolio, you, you kind of just be like, oh yeah, like lots of moti, maybe yeah. reasonably priced companies that are going to be around for a while. That Yeah. yeah. Like, there's nothing that you're like, <laughs> oh my God, why why do you own that? You know? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's nothing. Um, there's nothing standing out there. AMTD Digital wasn't in the list. Um, I don't know why. Better. <laughs> it's going to the moon. <laughs> Wonder where, what's happening with AMT Digital. We've, uh, let's have a look. Let's see. Let's see how we're tracking. Remember, it was uh, it was worth as much as uh, Meta platforms at one point. Can I have a uh, Can I have a guess at what the price has done in the last week before before you tell tell? Yeah, us? have a guess. Have a guess. So last week it was down like ninety percent or something, right? Yeah, so from yeah, so from two weeks ago till end uh, last week, it was down ninety percent um, yep. from its from its peak. So um, okay, I think, yeah, think it's now down ninety six percent from its peak. From like its its peak peak or peak, just from peak. the last week? No peak peak. 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 What did you say? Ninety six. Uh oh, hang on, Google isn't giving me the correct. Uh, <laughs> Google, for some reason, doesn't give the top. It must have only been very, very briefly at the top. Uh, uh, okay. whatever, well, should, should I do what it's done in the last me, week? Is that easier? That's all right. I can, I can calculate it. Okay. Uh, it is. Sorry, what did you say again? 90, <laughs> 96%. It is uh, uh, 92.5. Okay. So, it's uh, only down a little bit, like 20% or something in the last week. Must be. Uh, it is like down that. in the last five days. 61 percent well okay so there you go um yeah it's Dang. continuing to go down yeah so yeah hopefully no one um bought in on that unless you bought in on it you know well before the last month then congratulations to you <laughs> yeah <laughs> man could you imagine being like a being like an early employee who who just got like a few shares as part of your competition yeah or you just got some yeah <laughs> you just never looked at it didn't even think twice about it and then you just see the news and you're like oh my god <laughs> yeah. how do i sell these things <laughs> yeah like open up your open up your portfolio in the morning and there's like four extra zeros on the, on the number <laughs> mom yeah. i'm rich <laughs> oh boy yeah that's a that's a fascinating one it's it's it is um i can't believe it it was able to get so so high so yeah as i said it's the king of the meme stock so who will take the crown next um i don't know what i don't know but we'll uh we'll leave it there for today we've uh we're just coming in on an hour so thanks everyone for tuning in we didn't get to any uh questions this week i mean i guess we could do we could do one question we've got we've got a couple of minutes should we do Let's do let's do one question. Uh, I'll, I'll, let me just uh, let me just read this. Oh, you want me to do that one? Or yeah, I reckon that's a good one. This one? Yeah. Or the first one? This one? Okay. Uh, this question is uh, good work, guys. Uh, question: If Company A takes a five percent stake in Company B through the open market, and Company B's share price drops twenty percent uh, following the investment, but income is flat. Uh, how does company A report this on their financial statements, uh, income statement and balance sheet for years, assuming uh, it's still uh, held onto the same shares of company B? Yeah. Um, I see you've got a few notes here, Hamish, so I'll let you maybe speak to those. But I think there's this probably covers like a few important accounting things um, because the answer to this question is probably going to vary by country as as well. And there's a yeah. there's a few things like that. I know in like New Zealand, we had a, an accounting change a couple of years ago where if a business had had like a long term rental agreement or something of their office building, you know, that would suddenly show up as a liability on their uh, balance sheet, which I think was already the case in the US. And I think it just pays anytime you're interested in a company, particularly in a country you haven't invested in um, before to just understand some of those nuances if you can, even though it's not always that easy. Um, 
But yes, yeah. things like this can affect earnings a lot. Like Berkshire Hathaway is a classic where their stock portfolio, uh, you know, movements quarter to quarter are reflected in their earnings. So if you ever hear yeah. someone talking about a PE ratio with Berkshire, just like run and hide from that person because <laughs> because they probably yeah, don't know yeah. what they're talking about. Um, and that's yeah. a, a time where it might pay, you know, it's pro- it probably pays to look at something like their operating earnings from, you know, the underlying businesses at Berkshire as opposed to the net income. Um, but yeah. Not sure what you want to add to that, Hamish. Yeah, no, I'm glad you said that because I definitely would have forgotten to, uh, to to mention. Yeah, it does, of course, can it can very much vary from from place to place. But just to give you U.S. context, um, so there's really three ways that that shares or when companies own parts of other businesses, there's three ways that it, they go about uh, reporting it. If the stake is less than 20%, which is your question, uh, it's based on the value of the investment. So if it's a public company, that'll be valued based on the share price. And that's what you get with Berkshire with the kind of fluctuations um, in their in their net income or their earnings per share. Uh, if the company owns 20 to 50%, um, they call it a, a, I can't remember the name of how they call it. It's called like a substantial or, or an, some kind of substantial position. They have a special name for it. Um, but they use the equity method essentially where they adjust uh, it's a, it's adjusted based on their portion of of shareholder equity in the company so um, the equity of the, the company that they own and then if it's 50 percent or more so if they own the majority of the company then they just consolidate it into the financial statements and it's a part it's a subsidiary it's a partly owned subsidiary so yeah. those are the three ways that kind of it's a, it's accounted for at least in the US and those general rules I believe apply in Australia but uh, for the ASX companies, but yeah, there could be there could be variations. Yeah, um, and um, you you can be looking at one company where they have all three of these things. Like I'm just thinking again with Berkshire, <laughs> they've got a stock portfolio which is the less than twenty percent category. They've got something like Kraft yeah. Heinz goes in the twenty to fifty percent uh, equity method, and then they've got like yeah, uh, say Berkshire Hathaway Energy, they're a ninety percent owner of, which just shows up in the financial statements. So um, yeah, yeah, it can it can be very complex. Yeah, it can be. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's uh yeah, I, I definitely um get concerned when I'm when I'm looking at a company and they've got a they've got a mixed bag. But I mean, the equity holdings is probably the easiest, as you said, just to look at operating earnings. Yeah. Um, and I mean, even if they own fifty one percent of a company, it's just consolidated in. So you know, you get to see basically every all the lines um uh, to, to proportionate to the business so um yeah. yeah there you go all right we'll wrap it up there thanks everyone and as always if you have any questions uh, feel free to head over to the youtube version of the podcast or uh, if you're listening on spotify or watching on spotify now i should say uh you can go below uh, and just ask your question there and uh, we're going to grab questions in the future from from spotify we'll grab them from youtube um and, and we'll always try and answer a couple of questions uh, at the end of the podcast um, thanks, Tom, for joining me this week uh, while, uh, while Brandon is uh, having a power outage. Uh, <laughs> so thanks for, thanks for joining me. Um, Brandon will be back uh, next week. He will be back. Um, he's actually going away as well, which is why we originally were going to be recording. A, we we're going to be pre-recording a podcast today for a couple of weeks time, but we ended up uh, shuffling a few things around. So I don't know. Who knows who's going to be on the podcast in the next <laughs> few weeks? Um, it could be just Tom. Maybe, Tom. Yeah, maybe you'll both be gone. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe I'll be gone too. Who knows? Um, so, uh, yeah, just uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try and we'll keep you on your feet over the next couple of weeks. But um, thanks to ShareSite, uh, as always, for sponsoring. And um, we'll see you guys next week. See ya. See ya.